Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, episode 81. I'm Ben Rothenberg. She's Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm good. Are you in a restful sort of place in this lull of just the July tennis hamster wheel? Yeah, I don't mind it. I don't mind it at all. The lack of, of too many super relevant things happening is, is super nice for now. So yeah, I can't complain about a, a two-week, two-week, three-week break or so. Hard to complain indeed. So we have gotten a lot of stuff over the past few months and recent days in terms of questions from listeners. Um, and since this is a time, obviously, where there is less happening on court that really is of major importance, we thought it'd be a great time to sort of empty out our mailbag and give you guys the floor a little bit in terms of dictating what the show is about. So we've got Hold up, Ben. Yeah. Are you saying that Caroline Wozniacki double bageling Belinda Bencic in Istanbul is not a big story? Okay, we're going to get to that. But... <laughs> Not really. Sorry. <laughs> Anything that happens in Istanbul, which we've been to, you've been to three times, I think, all three years of champs were there. I went to twice. That tournament is empty, yo. Yo, it's sad. <laughs> it's really like, sad. It was so full when it was the champs. Exactly. The championships never looked like that. The championships were always like pretty full, you know, 80 to 100% full, even during, you know, well, we didn't have day sessions. It was only evening sessions. and That makes a difference. Yeah, that makes a big difference, I think. I mean, I don't know where this new location is located, like where the tournament, the Istanbul Cup is. So I don't know if it's like even further out than, I mean, not that the Sinan or Den was particularly central to central Istanbul, but I don't know. It was super sad. I mean, that was, it made Baku look crowded. Yeah. Yeah, Baku, and that's a feat. And that is a huge feat. So hopefully, and I've realized there's a difference between going to see matches between Pliskova and Vekic versus going to see Serena versus Lina or whatever was on offer at the Champs. But hopefully they can get their footing under them and rebound because it seemed like a pretty good tennis city when we were there. It, was a, it, was, it wasn't a bad tennis city before. I mean, a lot of, if you look back at the history of the Istanbul Cup, you had a lot of like big names playing in there and, and playing out there and winning tournaments and stuff. I think Lindsay won it once and... Yeah, Venus, I, mean, it, I think, maybe? Yeah, Venus. Prob- I mean, there are quite a few, like, kind of big names. So hopefully for the tournament, this is just from a business perspective, but hopefully from the, for the tournament, Caroline wins it. Yeah. And they can kind of, you know, use her to kind of buttress the marketing next year because she's a name that Turks recognize and a face that they recognize. But Maybe they're sick of her face. I don't, who knows how often those Turkish Airlines commercials play in actual Turkey? She's globally yours, Ben. That's true. Will be yours. Uh, so let's start off the mailbag with a question about Caroline, which actually wasn't a direct question for the show, but I thought we should get to it because we've got I've gotten other stuff around there. Thomas uh, Jansen, who might be Danish, I don't know, says, goodbye, Rory. Hello, old Caroline. On the back of her double bageling benchage and having a decent run to the second week of Wimbledon, do you think, uh, Courtney, that Caroline will be a player reborn without Rory? as fitting the narrative that a lot of people were writing during their relationship? I or mean, is that complete I, crap? I, I think it's, I mean, I'm not going to say it's complete crap. I mean, I think that, or, you know, you talk to some players and some coaches and there are certain players who who play better tennis when they're single and, you know, when they when they don't have distractions. And, and that's not 
like necessarily a commentary about like girls versus guys like we're guys it's totally fine or like whatever but so I just would really like to be able to discuss Caroline Wozniacki without having to ever talk about Roy McElroy ever again mm-hmm. I mean that's kind of my thing I mean if she is able now to 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 rebound and to to rebuild her career let her say it if, if she thinks that it's because yeah, I was like super distracted for the last couple of years because my life was pretty gravy and grand and I had different thoughts about where my life was going to go. And maybe, you know, she thought maybe I wasn't going to play tennis forever right? sort of thing then. And, you know, my personal life made me happier than anything that I could achieve on court. If she says that, then, yeah, it's the story. But I'm not going to like build that up to be what the narrative is surrounding Caroline, regardless of what happens with her results going here forward, just because it's convenient. It's yeah, it's pretty convenient. It's pretty lazy sort of narrative writing. It's and so I will, lazy. I will say it was so not helpful to those wanting to dispel this lazy narrative when Rory immediately won his first tournament after dumping her. That, that guy. That was obnoxious. That guy. Did he really have to do that? I mean, honestly. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, it, it, is, can Caroline get back into the top 10? Uh... Given, in my... That's a big pause for a former number one, I must say. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm because I'm, I'm thinking about who's in the top ten, and do I think that Caroline's better than them? You Kerber? Know? Kerber's in there. Yeah, I think Kerber's better than Caroline. Okay. I think Kerber is an amped up... Kerber does the things that I wish that Caroline would do. Because, like, Kerber can defend and whatever, and I think that Caroline's probably a better defender than Angie, but Angie can also just take a rip at the ball yeah. if she wants to because she's pissed off <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> or because she don't care no more. And that's great, you know, and, and I, I appreciate that about her. I mean, she's better than an Irani, but Irani's not in the top ten anymore. And then you talk, talk about the players who are going back into the top ten, so obviously Bouchard's in there now, but, like, an Ivanovich, she's at 11? Yeah. I don't know. I, I Right now, is Caroline Wozniak, even if she, like, plays you know, as well as she did second week slam Caroline. Is that a top 10 player? I'm, I'm not quite sure. That says a lot about the game improving over the last four years. I'll say that, which I guess is a good thing. Do you think that it has? Yeah, I do. I, I think that I think we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but I think that when Caroline was number one, it was a very down period for the top tier of the game in terms of it just the Williams is not being healthy. Kleister is being sort of a part-timer. Zvonareva at number two. I mean, there were a lot of weird things going on that when you look back, it just made it seem like there was an opening for Caroline that isn't there anymore and might not be any time in the rest of her career. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really hard to look at that top 10. You know, yeah, maybe she's like a nine or a 10, maybe, if she plays like really well. But yeah, I just think the amplitude of the game has has just really kicked it up a notch. I mean, you see the way that, that Bouchard plays now. You see a Halep, what she's able to do. You know, Vika, when she's back good and healthy. Serena, Maria, Petra, Lina. I mean, that's a pretty solid group of players in that yeah, top ten. Totally. Totally agree. So there's our first question. We got this general theme from a few people. People want to know who wins a slam first. Who's the next to break through on the ATP or w- and WTA? Uh, Zachary Hertz paired as a sort of a genie versus Halep conversation. Other people did that too. And yeah, what do you make? What? What? Sh- how do you look at this field going forward of the ones who haven't won yet, which includes obviously Genie, Halep, Radvanska still in that conversation, Kerber, I guess, people who are coming up from lower. What do you see as sort of the next next wave and who gets the first crack at it? Or is it impossible to know? Because remember last time we did this question. 
I actually wound up randomly guessing it right, and the answer is Bartoli. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, first to get a crack at it, two of them have been in slam finals. Yeah. So first to break through, then. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, they're putting themselves in that situ in that position, and you know, Hallett played a fantastic final against Maria Sharapova. Very easily could have won that match if if Pova doesn't like dig her heels in and you know, white knuckle everything. I mean, what can, I mean, no one's going to beat Petra the way Petra was playing in that Wimbledon final. So that's nothing, I don't think Bouchard should hang her head at all um, coming out of that one. So they put themselves in the position. They were playing well enough to win tournaments, to, to win the whole thing. I think, I think Bouchard against, you know, a bunch of other different players could have very easily won Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. Halep too. The only two finals she's lost in the last two years have both been to Sharapova on clay. I mean, they're putting themselves in the position to win it. I mean, you can't, how can you pick anybody outside of those two? And that's probably right. I mean, the question then, I guess, becomes about Redwanska, who is ranked ahead of them both. Or no, sorry, not ranked ahead of Halep anymore, but ranked ahead of Bouchard still. And we actually got a question about Aga, which went along the lines of what's going on with her? Is she in a slump? Uh, is it time for a coaching change? This is from Tennis Full. Uh, just to bring her into this conversation before we move to the men. Like, is Aga missed her window, even though she's still a top five player? Or what's, what's the forecast for her? Because I think that she's burned a lot of big chances and some good draws in the last couple of years that she might for not sure. ever get again. Particularly Wimbledon last year and then and then um, the oh, Australian she... Open this year. Yeah. Both winnable tournaments for her once everything kind of shook out the way that it did. But yeah, I mean, she has. She has let these opportunities slip away. I think her loss to Makarova was, at Wimbledon was absolutely stunning. I didn't see any of that because it was over so fast. It was over so fast. And I think there was some other major stuff going on at the time. Because I just remember like having to, you know how the, the press room is set up at Wimbledon where you have obviously your screen. But if luckily somebody sitting next to you is watching something else, you're kind of keeping an eye yeah. on what's going on in theirs. And, and so we had like the, the, the main scoreboard up on my neighbor's screen and I was watching something else. And just kind of looking and being like, oh my gosh, that score is moving very, very quickly with Radvanska. So, yeah, I mean, at this point, the way that the game is, I mean, has Agnieszka Radvanska... The thing is, you look at a Halep or you look at Jeannie, they're not even close to their peak yet. Wouldn't think so, no. Yeah, you know, and there's there's so many things they can still improve. With Aga, I mean, did she peak in that Vika match? It's entirely possible that she peaked in that Vika match. They sort of sold her soul for that performance. She's just like, please, God, or devil, or whatever her deity of choice in this situation <laughs> just let me beat vika once and let it be triumphant and it she was sold, yeah it was i mean she sold her soul to yoda <laughs> and she like completely went ballistic in that match and it and was she amazing had nothing left in the next one no she had nothing left and she really hasn't had much left ever since yeah she made the final i mean her ranking is still pretty good even in the race yeah. because she i guess made semis of australia made final of indian wells i think she semied in madrid want to say let's let's pretend she did for argument's sake she is sort of up there but yeah i think that i think that a coaching change would be interesting for her because i think that there is an untapped level with her game i don't know if there's a reason why she can't summon the sort of command she did against azarenka on a more regular basis not all the time but more often against these other top players because she just doesn't have a lot of top scalps since she's gotten into the top five i just think so much of it is that the way that her game is built that in the first three or four rounds of a tournament, she has to expend so much energy, mm -hmm. just you know, just because she doesn't have an overpowering way of beating people, she can't just like pull the trigger three shots into a, a rally, even though she's exhausted. So that by the time she gets to those points of the tournament where you're playing top players, 
just kind of wiped. Well, I think then then get a new fitness coach or get somebody who can make her into sort of a marathoner on some level. But you can't. I don't know if you can just do that. I mean, I feel like that. I don't know. I I don't think that her body is built to be able to do that. Honestly, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But I, I'm not entirely convinced that it is. She's not a bit. She's not a strong. She's not a big strong person whose body looks like inherently ready to take a pounding every single week. No, that's true. But I think I think there's no reason she can't move her body more in the direction of like a Wozniacki in terms of being just like dude a little bit. I know Caroline's much taller and stronger. Right, like but she's built, but, she, but she can get stronger. Uh, at least at least like lower body or something for Aga to give her more, I don't know. I think that you're I vehemently disagree with that. Okay. This is this is the podcast it's, where it's people not, use the word vehemently to describe yes. something about Agnes Redwanska. Women's bo- women's bodies just don't work like that. You don't just like hit the gym and like get bigger and stronger and like all of a sudden like you're like RoboCop. It just doesn't work that way. And I don't I just looking at Aga and the way that she moves on the court and the way that her body is built just bio, biomechanically. It just doesn't look like the type of frame that can withstand a year-long season, let alone like four back-to-back-to-back tournaments or even a tough two-week tournament. But that is just my opinion. That's a valid opinion, indeed. Next question is another women's question to get a lump these together. It comes from Fabian Iguireneza. Am I pronouncing that wrong? Probably. Uh, who says, Do you think Vika will qualify for this year's WTA Finals in Singapore? What do you make of her absence, subsequent return to the tour? And also, Nick Spurrett also asks about Vika saying, how far will she fare in the U.S. Open? Is she a genuine threat? And I'll start off, because I know I always pitch this to you first, but I will start by saying that I would absolutely buy Azarenka stock right now going into this hardcore season. Not to necessarily maintain her ranking, because she has a lot of points to defend, having made the final of San Diego, winning Cincy, and making final of the U.S. Open. But in terms of overperforming her current ranking, I think she'll absolutely do that on this stretch. And I totally could see her getting into Singapore uh, just by her fingernails. I really think there's no reason not to buy right now. Um, I do not think that. Well, I mean, I would buy her if you don't, have, assuming that her stock is low right now, which I don't think it necessarily is. But um, her stock is low. I mean, she's barely won matches in the last several months. That's not how the free market works, Ben. Like, I mean, people know that like she's when the stock takes a dip. Like, I don't think that it's as low as like you're saying that it is. Okay. But yeah, no, I mean, I think that. But I mean, in your scenario, yes, she's a total buy. Like, she will outperform her ranking, no doubt about it. I mean, she's 39 in the race currently to Singapore. So, do I think that she'll qualify for Singapore? I do not. Okay. But that's not. But I, I do think that she'll, barring any further major injury, I think that if anything, you buy her now for the 2015 season, mm-hmm. not necessarily for 2014. Yeah, I mean, just an incredible amount of, of points to defend over the course of the next two months. I was impressed by what I saw on the grass, for sure. Um, she played much better than I thought that she would. But I also thought that she would go further at Wimbledon. And she lost a bit earlier than I thought she would. Yeah, it's just, it's really hard to tell. I, I am not convinced that she's fully fit. I mean, I think that she's injury-free, but I don't necessarily think she's fully fit. And I think that that fitness and not, not you know, fitness and match fitness and tournament fitness um, takes time to rebuild. And, and that's just not going to happen in the span of like two months. So, yeah. So I think that, that she's, she's a strong lock to like, obviously get herself back into the top five next year, I think. 
So if I'm if I'm in her position, I'm kind of like building toward that. Okay. Um, and hopefully she doesn't put herself in a position where she's trying so hard to like get the results now. You know, almost like when Sharapova came back in January and, you know, was suffering all these like poor losses and stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. she at least had a good perspective, even though it was frustrating. Like, you know, I just came back like, duh. And she took her time and was marginally patient with it. And so I hope that Azarenka is the same. Right. And, and Sharapova hit that good balance of, be, balance of being marginally patient. Like she was still right. completely fed up when she lost to Camilla Giorgi. Yes. In as most Wells. people are. <laughs> For some reason... And I've noticed this with other players. Georgie, losing to Georgie is something that pisses people off more than like almost any other player. Wouldn't it piss you off? It would piss me off. I don't know what it is. Is it just the fact that she just like swings for the fences and her game yeah. is so homemade and her dad is there looking like a fraggle? It, it's pure. I think it's just pure bashing. I think that sometimes when players play like a Georgie, like they kind of feel like that's not tennis. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, I, I, would, I could do that, too, if I just, like, stood at the baseline and swung, you know, and that's obviously selling Camilla Giorgi very short with respect to her ball-striking abilities, because if you could do that, you would do that all the time. She's, and, al- she's almost like the WTA equivalent of Isner in some way. I mean, because really, we don't really have serve bots, per se, on the WTA. And so Camilla Giorgi is sort of every single serve is, every single shot, rather, is, like, an attempt at an Isner serve, well, which is wildly inconsistent. To me, she's more of like a WTA Jack Sock. Okay. Like just see the ball grip and hit, kind of no matter what sort mm-hmm. of, in regardless of your your court positioning or all that sort of stuff. So you know she's capable, obviously as we know, of pulling off really big upsets, and she's also capable of going out in first rounds to nobody's. Sounds like Jack so Sock. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 more it's more Jack Socky to me than than Isner because I don't feel like Isner just like sees the ball and tries to hit it as hard as he possibly can at all times. Okay. We have a question about big hitters. Speaking of big hitters, from uh, Githika Arakatla, who asks, is Simona Halep like 2010 Andy Murray in that she can be hit off the court by a big hitter having a good day? And I'll sort of add that I think almost any player on tour can be hit off the court by a big hitter having a good day. I don't really feel like we need to be picking on 2010 Andy Murray on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Did that happen to Andy Murray? Yeah, I mean that was that was kind of his, the whole thing was that he was he what he needed to be more offensive to get people to back off the baseline because otherwise he would drop into a defensive shell behind the baseline and big hitters really would just like tee off and just hit through him. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I mean, I'm trying to think with Halep like kind of being a player that gets hit off the court. I mean, the only two players that I've seen hit her off the court in, in true kind of even matchups were just Sharapova. You know what I mean? Well, I mean... Serena did it before. Uh, Serena. This current Serena. I mean, we saw them play, like, quarters of Cincinnati last year, which was before Simona got to be a top 10 person. Right. And they haven't played yeah. since then. Because even, I mean, against Jeannie, Jeannie was trying to hit her off the court, but, you know, once she jammed her ankle, it wasn't really a foot fair fight, but she still right. was kind of able to get that and, and had the mini break in the first set tie, first set tie break against yeah. her. So... I guess Venus I, beat her in Tokyo... I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Vitova has probably beaten her. Uh, but I, but, yeah. But I don't really see that as being like a problem of Halep per se. Like that's just all those players that we just reeled off could hit through anybody yeah. on any given day. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure I buy the comparison. That's a fair the thing, and I think the same sort of thing I think applies to a lot of players, even like Nadal. I think it's vulnerable to this in terms of, especially on grass, like I've been saying for the last few years now, through a broken record on this, but like if he gets an 
a player who's zoning, like a Kyrgios did, or not zoning, but playing well and hitting his spots, almost any player is vulnerable to being hit through. I mean, it happened to Serena against Lasicki uh, yep. last year at Wimbledon. Like, almost anybody can be outgunned by one of these big gun players. And it's just sort of a something you have to deal with in the game. It's it's, it's called matchups. And yeah. that's what I love about tennis is that so much of it is matchup-based. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just like, oh, he's the number one player in the world. He's going to get through the entire draw because that's what the number one player in the world does. It's like, no, look at the draw. It's all the types of players that Rafa is not going to be comfortable against. And, you know, drops the first set against every single one of them and then finally loses to, to Kyrgios. But, yeah, I mean, that will always be an issue when you look at Halep in a draw is that when the draw comes out, you're going to have to look at it and see, you know, where the hitters are. But that's what I would have done with 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 Waz, with Aga, with, um, you know, a Kerber. Uh, yeah, so. There we go. Speaking of Nick Kyrgios, in light of the Drake Kyrgios feud, what would be your dream rapper versus tennis player feud? And Courtney, you wrote about this on BTB. So maybe if people haven't seen this amazing cross-cultural, stupid, unbelievably stupid beef, you can blurb them on there briefly before diving into hypotheticals. The only funny thing about this, because I laughed when I read about it, is because Ben knows this. Like, I personally don't understand Drake. Like, <laughs> I, I just don't. I'm like, what is, is he like a rapper? Is he, and I, I, I sound like a super square old person, but I just don't get why he's a big deal. That's a totally fair point. I mean, I so, knew, I knew Drake or whatever his real, Aub- Aubrey Graham from when he was an actor on Degrassi. Right. Uh, Degrassi Next Generation, which is a sort of Canadian teen soap opera that used to air on some channel in the U.S. also. And it was incredibly bad. And he got shot in a, in a dramatic school shooting episode and then was in a wheelchair for the rest of the show and became known as Wheelchair Jimmy. Yeah, and so for... I can't take him seriously at any point. <laughs> I know. I really can't. That's why. Like, because that's the thing, is I don't take him seriously at all. The only things that I know about Drake are that... And so much of this I've learned from Ben trying to explain to me Drake. <laughs> Is like in like, on like some of our ridiculously long, boring car trips where it comes to this. We talk. I have to ask about Drake, but like, is that he's kind of like he's a rapper, but he's kind of like an emo rapper. Yeah. Or like soft, like he's just kind of. It's not like hard rapping. It's all like emo and emotional and like whatever. But it's also a lot about bitches and hoes. Yep. Yep. So there's that too, which it's I still find that perplexing. It's this weird sort of uh, look how vulnerable I can be arrogance that is a really interesting sort of phenomenon that I don't get it's like look at me I'm just like so honest and soul bearing and it's just I'm so I have so much ennui about all these bitches and hoes and it's just like <laughs> what shut up exactly so I mean I like yeah pick a bit yeah. essentially so anyways so I don't get Drake that is kind of the whole basis of this so when it came across my desk that Drake had found out about Nick Kyrgios who after he beat Yuri Vesely people were asking him you know, what were you listening to? Because, you know, Nick has those those hot pink uh, beats, headphones, beats yeah. that he walks out on, uh, out in. And he's like, oh, yeah. Well, I was listening to Drake and I lost the first set. So I came out kind of flat. And so I'm not, not going to do that again. Doesn't do it for me. Whatever. Somehow Nick Curio, or Drake hears about this. And I honestly have no idea where he heard I think about it. What I heard, I think it was on a conference call. Like some Drake was doing some conference call for something and someone randomly brought up Nick Kyrgios. Like that was the best question they could come up with for Drake. That's which, an amazing question which for Drake. Power it to you. It would have been my question to Drake. Yeah. Um, 
uh, after what's your deal? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are you exactly? But anyways, so he got mad or I don't know if it was like a joke because we don't know what the tone of how Drake was saying any of this. But yeah, he was just like, I want to know who this kid is. And he who he said that he listened to my music, then lost his match. And I want to look him in the eye and see what a man he is and chop him down. And I'm like, chop him down. Chill out. Whatever. Anyways, Nick Kyrgios sent a tweet. It was like, dude, like, I don't know. I love your music. Like, whoa. Which is about the appropriate response. But anyways, all that is to say, Drake knows anything about Nick Kyrgios? Not a whole lot, because he thought Nick Kyrgios lost. And Nick Kyrgios actually won and then changed up his playlist and beat Rafa Nadal. So he did okay. In spite of Drake, Nick Kyrgios succeeded. In spite of Drake. But in terms of rapper tennis player beef... There's so many ways you can go with this. So many. There is. Well, let's stay away from Serena. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> there's some actual beef. Uh, I don't know enough rappers, dude. All okay. my all my all my rap knowledge is like pretty much ended like when Biggie died. That's the thing. You can go old school. Like I was gonna say, like there's no reason why. And I I, had, I made a joke about in my tweeted the link to your story about Drake and Kyrgios about mm-hmm. this is the best rap tennis beef since like Justin Ennen versus Fifty Cent. And I got like a few like tweets me like what what was and like obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> So well, ob- we don't know. Hold on. <laughs> sure. Neither you or I was a tennis reporter at the time, Ben, which means that probably no one even went out to find out if Justine had had a beef with 50 Cent. It's probably true. I think that's more of a Pierre Eves beef, knowing how she sort of rolled. <laughs> I, I, you, just said, you just said Pierre, beef, Pierre Eves beef. Pierre Eves beef. <laughs> let's, not examine that, let's not examine that phrase too closely. For some reason, I see some basic rappers who could get involved in this. Obviously, Kanye. Kanye would be with Obvious Kanye. Anybody. How about like a Kanye? Oh, what a Kanye Federer beef. Because of their, um, because of their whole like no disrespect to Ben Affleck thing last fall, there's mm. no reason Kanye couldn't have taken that way out of context and had a major beef with Roger Federer. How great would that be for Federer to have a beef with anybody? A. B, like, like an actual like sort of hip-hop-ish beef. B. Especially with Kanye. It'd be so great. I really want that to happen. I like that. I like that. Um, also, I'm thinking for some reason... I don't know. Do you know who Iggy Azalea is? I do. Okay. What about Iggy Azalea and Azarenka? I feel like they're trying <laughs> to sort of occupy similar turf in their respective worlds on some level. Okay. Okay. I could see them sort of clashing blonde heads. Fair. I could see that. I could see like a... Like an iced tea versus... <laughs> Ernest Golbis beef. Okay. How would, like, that, how would that occur? Like super rich boy popping off, like speaking Ernest Golbis here, yep. uh, popping off, uh, being all anti-vampire and shit, and Ice-T taking offense. <laughs> Ice-T's a smart dude too. Like Ice-T could like, I would be interested to hear, see those two dudes have a conversation. Like a rap battle? Not necessarily a rap battle, but... Like, an intellectual conversation and have beef coming out with some sort of philosophical something. It'd be interesting. Okay. Other names, I, I'm just sort of putting in a random rapper tennis generator. I would love to see Missy Elliott beef with somebody. I'm trying to think who her ideal adversary would be. I don't know. Let's say, let's say Nadal. We haven't said him yet. Rafa versus Missy Elliott. Why? I don't know. It doesn't need to make... Why does Drake Kyrgios make any sense? It doesn't. Like Because words were said. Okay. You can't just throw out... You just can't, like, randomly pair tennis players with random rappers. Yeah. No, that that's true. Work. That's pretty lazy of me, I admit. Okay. Someone would beef with Sveta. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sveta, <laughs> Sveta versus... Uh, I don't know. I, Ja Rule? 
Ja Rule? Is he still alive? I think so. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying There's to. I'm just no connection. I'm, what would what would okay? Who would Sveta connect with? Them? Some like Russian rapper or something? Oh, like I could see I could see like a Sveta like like MIA rap battle. Like, okay. a, like where like MIA like took like great offense because like MIA takes like her whole ethos and background and history and everything with the Tamil Tigers and er- anyways all of that is like she takes great pride and and is very possessive of it uh-huh. um and Sveta is kind of a misappropriator that's <laughs> true so Sveta could wear like a Tamil Tigers shirt like on court Exactly, and, and like MIA would be like, "What the fuck? Like, you can't just like wear, you know? Like, I could see MIA taking like offense to that, and Sveta kind of being like, "I don't understand why you're mad. Like, I love like, you know, and that kind of not that disconnect. That's, that's totally true because Sveta was the player who played Wimbledon most recently with Cornrows. Yeah, and yeah, and Sveta, I think Sveta is actually the only tennis rapper, if you don't count Andy Murray's cameo in that Brian Brothers song. Um, I think Sveta did that, did some rap for some like Russian, like pre Sochi pump up song or something. I want to say it wasn't, it wasn't great, but it happened. Um, it was it in Russian. It would have been great. We don't know what she said. That's she true. She said something so incredibly uplifting. That's true. And we wouldn't know. Let's That's, not judge. I, okay. I won't judge. Only God can judge. Okay. And then Andy Murray, I feel like, should have a rap feud with somebody. Because I feel like people are always picking on him. Like, who's like the Virginia Wade of rappers he could, who would, he, who would he come for have, Andy Murray? He could have the he could have beef with the streets, <laughs> the streets maybe. That works. Yeah, like I could totally see like Mike Skinner, who is the streets, like p- dropping down in some song. And I'm actually showing off way more hip hop knowledge than I realized that I actually had. Mm-hmm. But anyways, uh, like dropping down, dropping a song that's like basically totally taking the piss out of Andy Murray in an incredibly smart and witty way. But then I also kind of think Andy would be like, huh, that was really funny. So I don't know if he'd really take offense to it, but he might. It'd be a non-existent beef. It'd be attempted beef that Andy would be like, oh, whatever. Yeah. He's like, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 There's a lot of that. uh, All right, so there we go. And that has been this hip-hop tennis intersection, which, like for last last episode's outro song, we hope these worlds come closer together. We think they could have some fun times together, hip-hop and tennis. So... Let's just do it. You know, why not? Yeah, the tennis hip hop remix would be all right. Be okay. Speaking of beefs that don't make any sense, let's talk about Fabio Fanini's beef with humanity briefly. Um, Catherine asks My question is after seeing his antics at Wimbledon, do you think if Fanini fixed his head game, he could be a relevant top 10 or better player? He's 27 and seems such a waste of unfulfilled talent. At present, he just presents as a curious, somewhat amusing sideshow. And we didn't mention um, on the last show that Fanini received the biggest ever on-site fine at a slam, which is like the one that was given immediately after the match, not like after some sort of uh, post-tournament mediation or whatever Serena got her $92,000 fine for. Fanini got fined like $29,000 for his (laughs) match against Alex Kuznetsov. Uh, which he won 9-7 in the fifth. Fanini, is he a lost cause? Can he ever be saved? Should we care? What do, what do you what do you um, make of his of his sort of salvage ability as a person? I'm kind of inclined not to care, really. Okay. Um, and that's mainly, and it was 27-5 for the loss, or for the win over Kuznetsov, and then another, I think, 2,000. Right, that's right. Right, um, against uh, Anderson, mm-hmm. which he lost. 
for a total twenty nine five. But um, yeah, I I don't care because he doesn't care. I kind of generally feel that way about certain players. Like I will feel kind of emo- as emotionally invested in your progress and your um, I don't know your results as as I feel like you do. And that's always been my issue with 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 Fonini, with Amalfis as well, mm-hmm. um, with Atomic. Yeah, Atomic, um, by the way, just got dropped by IMG. Yeah, reportedly, yeah. So we'll see. That's which is surprising because apparently the contract wasn't even up. It wasn't like they choose they chose to renew it. There must they, have been some sort of out clause. Yeah, um, or, they t- they or some sort of breach it. of it that he had. He made right. or something. So um, interesting one there. But yeah, like I, I, you know, Fabio Fanini seems to have been able to craft for himself a career as a tennis player that he seems to like quite a bit, and and that means showing up when he wants to show up and not showing up when he doesn't want to show up and trying when he wants to try and not trying when he doesn't want to try. And yeah, I mean, if he, you know, despite all that, he, he's pretty solid top 15 um, the last year. And so you would think that if he could put in a little bit more effort and, and, and do a little bit better um, that, yeah, I mean, the top 10 isn't completely out of the question. It's gotten up but, to like 11 or 12, I think already. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but does, is that something he even wants? Probably, I don't know. And because I don't know, I kind of don't care if he doesn't get it, I guess. That's totally fair. And I do think there will be, I mean, he's older than he seems a lot of times because he, it's a relatively late bloomer in terms of just rankings. I mean, he's 27 and now just sort of finally getting his footing in the top 20. But he, I mean, there's going to be openings, especially his, his career based on injury and health. There's no reason why it can't outlast Nadal's, let's say, for by a few years if Nadal stops early for whatever reason and he'll have looks at winning big clay titles and stuff if he keeps any sort of head on his shoulders those are a lot of big ifs but yeah i think he could sort of vulture something at some point but as of right now not a major change no i think it's best to watch him without getting invested i mean he's he is a complete clown out there so enjoy that part of it and same with monfils like the monfils fanini match at the french open was such (laughs) amazing clownery it was I immediately got there like during the first set and stayed for all five, which I almost never do for early round men's matches because it takes so much time. Um, and yeah, it was great. I had a yeah. blast. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not to say it's like it. it sometimes I write, I write about Fabio Fanini or I talk about Fabio Fanini with like kind of this air of disdain, and it's not that. I mean, I guess some of that does come from the fact of like, gosh, I wish you would just like be professional mm-hmm. and just grow up. You know, you're not a child playing. You know, you're like grow up. This is your job and if anybody acted the way that he acts, you know, in any job, they'd be fired. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, you, you you don't actually get to just do what you want to do. Sometimes you have to do what is required of you. And some of that is, oh, I don't know, not popping off at, at press and not, uh, you know, making what I, I mean, a bunch of different people have spoken about it behind the scenes, but it's entirely possible that he made, like, a racial comment towards James Kiantavong in that match against Fabio Fanini. Oh, I hadn't heard that. I just uh, heard he made fun of his hair gel, which is also not great to do to not a Not great, no, but but I had a suspicion that he did, and um, based on some of the things that I saw, and then I, I kind of talked to a few people who were closer courtside and had the mics on. And, mm. and, and that's so, the thing. We don't know what exactly he got his fine for. Right. That's the frustrating well, thing. About what, two ten thousand. He got two $10,000 knocks for, for damaging, unsportsmanlike. Or, or, yeah. damaging the court. Is what I understand. 
Uh, one of the tw- there was there was a twenty thousand for unsportsmanlike. I know that. But it was two chunk one ten thousand dollar fine, another ten thousand dollar fine. Each one. This is what I understand to be the case. I haven't like confirmed it or like whatever. It's just what I've been told by people who seem to know. I can. But, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Just that that they were both for basically chucking his racket and damaging the court because each time you damage the court, it's an automatic ten thousand dollar fine, which is what okay. Bernard Tomic got that one year in Scotland, yeah when he lost yeah when he can he because if you damage the court the court becomes unplayable for us of the tournament and 18 was pretty duffed up after what Fanini did out there um but yeah but then also just you know any other sort of comments i don't know but it it seems to me that it it's a pretty shocking thing in tennis that like you can get you can find somebody twenty nine thousand five hundred dollars and you don't have to explain why yeah it's ridiculous that's ridiculous. That's a lack, an incredible lack of transparency and a really arrogant amount of transparency, in my opinion. I completely agree. It's Bush League. I mean, to, to think that no one will want an explanation when a lot of this conversation or what Fanini was saying was A, either in Italian or B, uh, just completely not near a microphone. Right. Just like any other sport, you hand down the biggest fine in the history of slams and you have to put out a paragraph about what happened. Exactly. We're not I asking mean, much, but- just a paragraph of what he did to merit these fines. Right, and if and if you're the club, you should want to do that. Yeah, you should because it is a ridiculously huge fine. Like you need to justify it, and you yep. need to tell people we're doing it because, whether it's he damaged the court, each instance of court damage is ten thousand dollars plus another seven thousand five hundred for unsportsmanlike conduct for cursing in one, you know, like whatever. Okay, well then that's basic. Those are your rules. Ten k per hit, like whatever. Or if it's something more cynical than that, then that should be you know, disclosed as well, but this whole idea that somehow, somewhere, like, whoever it is within the ATP, or whether it's the ITF, or whoever, is protecting Fabio Fanini, because this is not the first time he's done something like this. Yeah. You know, he didn't get anything. He didn't even get a fine. He got nothing for how he, he spoke to Mohamed Leani in Monte Carlo, I believe it was. Uh-huh, yep. Um, you know, some of the stuff that he says in Italian is, I mean, gosh, if John Isner or Andy Murray said any of that... The things I was sitting next to an Italian reporter during the Malfi's Fanini match, and the translations were incredible. I mean, there were things like some woman was sitting like slow to her seat, sitting down to her changeover, and he was like, "Sit down, you horrible, ugly goat!" In Italian, right? Like, you can't talk to people that way, Jesus. Like and you I, really yeah. can't, and yet everybody protects him. This is what I do not understand about Fabio yeah. Fanini. Everyone protects him. And and on the documentation side, I will say I played high school hockey in D.C., which is a slightly lower stakes situation <laughs> than playing Only on the ATP tour though. at Slams. And they had on like the Federation, not the Federation, God, like the league conference website, MSHL, it was like the Maryland Scholastic Hockey League. They had reports for anybody who'd been suspended or for like, uh, for like a game, for whatever reason. And the referee would have to write up a report about what happened to this game to make, to warrant a suspension for the player. And some of them were so entertaining. They would have things like blow-by-blow, blow, like, dialogue back and forth between player and ref to get, like, unsportsmanlike. And they would have all this, like, profanity and cursing and name-calling and bad behavior by drunken students and parents. They were great. There's no reason why the ATP shouldn't embrace this possibility for storytelling. Just me. No. Sell and, the and- game. If you want to sell the game and regret the days of no McEnroe being around or whatever... Pump this stuff up. They'll get a new element into the game that will attract some people more than it will uh, uh, clear out the ones who are already there. 
That's just Fabio, my two Fabio, Yeah, no, I totally agree. Fabio the introvert wants to be a villain. Let him be the villain. <laughs> let him be. Let him be that old Hollywood trope of the introverted villain. <laughs> you know the. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I forget which magazine it was that he was naked in after he lost Wimbledon. Uh, it was some Cosmo British magazine. Okay, British was, Cosmo or something. Yeah, British Cosmo. The email, the release. I don't know if you got it too. Had all these clauses in it, like if you use this photo, you must not make fun of Fabio Fanini in your story, and you Pretty have much. to be nice to him, and you have to say only nice things about Fabio Fanini. Like, stop protecting him. Just let him be this ridiculous caricature cartoon villain of a person he is and because let people want, enjoy it. And you exactly. need that in the game. People want someone they love to hate. And Fanini is setting himself up that way with incredible amounts of consistent effort. <laughs> let Fabio be Fabio. That's all we're saying. Yeah. All we're saying. I, I agree with you. Short question. Another one for Fabian Igorniza. Who do you think is more likely to follow Yelena Ristich down the aisle after she married Novak Djokovic post-Wimbledon title? Good timing for them, by the way. Raf, Rafael Nadal's girlfriend. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Jiska. Jiska? Jiska, yeah. Jiska or Andy's Kim Sears or some other top five player on the women's side. I'll throw in, you know, Marie and Grigor, whoever else you want to put in there. Who is the next of this group? Do we know? Do we care? I don't really care. Um, but I think I'm, I'm going to go with Kim Sears. Okay. I just think that, I mean, the Spanish aren't exactly rushing a, a people who rush to get down the aisle, mm-hmm. generally speaking. And I don't think that, that yeah, I, I, I think it would be more Andy and Kim for sure. But That's top fair. five, I mean, I don't, I don't think Maria and Grigor are in a rush. <laughs> I wouldn't I, think so. I, I wouldn't think so. He's a baby. He's a baby. He's a baby. And Bless him, but he's a baby. Yeah. So. In terms yeah. of yeah, Radvanska, no. No. She's a boyfriend, I think, but no. Yeah, she does. Um. Yeah, Simona, I don't know. Serena, probably not. <laughs> Lena's already married. <laughs> um. Maybe she'll. I would put. <laughs> You know what? Maybe she'll renew her vows with Dennis before Rafa and Chiska get married. That's a bet. That's an interesting bet right there. I would need subtitles on those vows because they would probably be hilarious <laughs> for both of them. It would really be hilarious. Next question relates to Serena, who we don't think is getting married soon. This comes from Ziggy P. Uh, hey, Ben and Courtney. Is it as simple as burnout for Serena, mentally speaking? And is this proof that... Had she committed herself, see also open letter from Chris Everett, to tennis in her Serena Slam days, as she did from 2012 Wimbledon to the end of the 2013 season, she might have retired long ago, I guess, from burnout. Um, ultimate, so ultimately, was Richard Williams right in making sure his daughters both had outside interests and not being so single-minded with their tennis careers? Otherwise, Serena and Venus could have both borged out. I mean, thoughts on that? Cause this, and another question comes from Jonathan Smeds on Serena who asks if she doesn't win the U.S. Open, is this season considered a flop for her? And she's won a lot of other tournaments, but still. And I think, um, as we mentioned last time, Serena is close to being a slamless number one, quite possibly, or no sl- defending slam champ number one. If she doesn't win in New York, the math could easily work out that way. Yeah, is this sort of current swoon a indictment on some level of the sort of more glue scheduling intensity that, got some good dividends the past previous 18 months of this year, but really has sort of sputtered pretty hard, especially at the last two slams. I think it's a great question. I do too. I just, 
I think that there's just so many variables and factors going on that it's really hard to say. And I don't, I hate cop out answers, but that kind of is my answer simply because, okay, yes, I see. I mean, I do think that what's happening right now is burnout. I think that so much of it, I don't, I don't think it's a lack of motivation. You know I mean? I think that, that she really does want to capture slam number 18 and, and move up the ranks. And, mm-hmm at the beginning of the season, really see if, if it was possible for her to, to, to chase down Steffi Graf. You know, I think that Serena wants to finish this year as, or finish her career as undoubtedly, without question, the best female tennis player to ever pick up a racket. Yeah. And so long as those records remain out there, there's always going to be room for people to kind of argue, well, it's actually Steffi, or what about Chris Everett, Martina, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that the, the motivation was there. Um, so I do think that it's burnout, physical and mental and definitely emotional. But do I think it's an indictment of that Chris Everett letter? I'm not entirely sure. because Of, of like, I was saying more indictment of, um, or I guess you can go with that, but also of the sort of more toggle scheduling or the uh, sort of the sort of his yeah. approach to like playing as many tournaments as possible, going to Bastad, going to all these other places she used to not go to and playing a full schedule and not pulling out of tournaments, and which I guess is sort of following what Chris Everett was suggesting. Right. So yeah, they're no, sort of one and the same, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it more towards, like, looking back on her career. Okay. Um, and because uh, the initial question, right, was about, like, you know, maybe Richard Williams was right to, yeah. to, to encourage his kids to have outside interests. And on some level, I definitely do agree with that, simply because I do look at, like, current tennis players who are even younger and then I look at them and I say and I think in my own head like gosh like if you were like my kid's sister I'd want you so much to like take your foot off the gas pedal mm-hmm. and like chill out and not take this whole tennis thing so seriously and like you know things like that but at the same time who's to say that like if Serena and Venus were taught and trained and brought up from a very young age to do what Patrick Mortoglu made Serena, not made, it's not like he forced her into anything, she agreed to it, um, but encouraged Serena to do the last couple of years. If, the, if that was kind of the norm from when they were younger, who's to say they would have burnt out? Maybe this was just too big of a step up from the type of commitment Serena had been used to for, you know, whatever, 10 years of her career. Yeah, I think, though, that you can sort of look That's- at other people sort of in a similar cohort to them. Um, age-wise, who aren't around anymore, and say that with pretty good certainty, I think, that a lot of the Williams scheduling and part-timing at times, which may have hurt them in the short run occasionally at slams or wherever else, um, has kept them around being relevant people in 2014. I mean, uh, look at, like, Kleisters and Ennin are both younger, and they're both out of the game. Uh, Hingis is younger than Venus and close to Agent Serena, and she's been out for a while. Um these people, and I'm sure there are other people in that category too, like a Dementiva, uh, I could add more. People who are around in their same age and aren't playing. Yeah, I mean, there's obvious, I don't think that if they had gone the sort of Chris Everett, Patrick route their whole career, I don't think either would be around anymore. So I do, That's probably, I do buy that yeah. premise. No, yeah, no, I, I think that there's absolutely a valid argument for that. I mean, I think when, though, at the end of the day, like, let's say, like, like, let's say Serena doesn't win another major mm-hmm. and she retires at some point in the last next three years. When you look back on her career, like, don't you then still, I mean, as much as she accomplished and as long as she played, don't you, don't you have to take that part-timing into, into 
the analysis is, is, is in terms of like the whole discussion of goat and everybody's like, oh, well, Serena did this and she played longer. It's like, yeah, but she kind of took her, she played selectively and, yeah. you know, she kind of protected herself in that way. Whereas you look at like, you know, a graph, for example, who just kind of like pedaled to the metal the whole time. Yeah, but The whole time for Steffi. Right. You know, and, and isn't that. And then one, what she won, and then obviously the other argument is like, well, the quality of competition and what happened if Monica doesn't get stabbed and all these sorts of things. I mean, I think it's like a really, really incredible debate to actually have and hopefully not with sharp objects around. (laughs) But um, but I mean, I I wonder at the end of the day if the part timing helps or hurts their legacy. That's a good question. I don't know. I think I think you can say it both ways for sure. And I do think it definitely is an asterisk when you're talking about, like, Serena currently being the oldest ever number one, which I think she is right now. Um, yeah, on that level, yeah, she's skipped many months of competition in various patches of the career, which ha- makes her have less mileage than a lot of players. Um, in terms of, like, total wins, she's way behind a Steffi, a Martina, a Chris, things like that. Yeah, so. and, and I wonder, too, from a fan perspective, and this is not specific to Serena, because I know, obviously... She has a lot of fans, and she's deserved those fans, and her fans are very passionate. But, like, on the whole, I'm just wondering, like, do fans, would fans rather see players just pedal to the metal and go? Or would they, or do they, or are they, like, kind of like, oh, it's cool if you want to, like, part-time it? Like, if if you part-time it, doesn't that kind of throw the entire, like, kind of system into flux? I mean, I think the one who really sort of part-timed and, screwed up the system on some level was Kleisters. Kleisters was the one who really played very part-time and was the best player, and her ring didn't show it for quite a while um, during Kleisters 2.0 or 3.0, whatever you want to call it, um, when she was winning those additional slams, the three later ones post-Jada. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, but I think in general, if you're a fan of the Williams sisters and you started liking them when Venus first made her run to the U.S. Open final in 97... It's pretty cool for you that 17 years later, she's still there. And you still have that same hook in tennis if you want it. I mean, then, then if she had just true. condensed it all into seven years. So I think from a WTA perspective, they should love it that these people are still in the game, bringing their same fan bases in for that long. But I just think that, that, that on the flip side, that then creates a situation where you can't be pissed off when there are those years where like a Caroline Wozniacki ascends to number one. Or- no, sure a JJ or a, you know, Denara or, oh, the WTA is so weak. It's like, it's the product is not inherently weak. It's that like week in and week out, the best players are not committing. And that's a, pro- that is a problem product wise, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. you can't be mad then if there are these spells where like a player is just like, peace, I'm out. And it opens up obviously opportunities for other players to step up. And then you rip on the product or like, oh, the product is so weak. It's like, no, it's because a certain select few players who we put up on pedestals and we treat as like unassailable, you know, champions of the sport decided that they didn't really care enough to play. Right. And that impl- that, that applies to Kim. That applies to to the, the Williamses. It applies to to a bunch of different players. So I don't know. I mean, it's I don't know. It's an interesting discussion. I I hadn't really thought about it that much until now, but. Um, I don't know. Sorry. Oh, that's, no, it's don't nothing to apologize. Hopefully we got you guys thinking too. And if you have any thoughts, as always, please, you know, we don't need to have this be a one way discussion or all Q and a, if you have thoughts to tweet us, leave us on Facebook, email us, uh, at, uh, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. And we'll be happy to hear what you have to say as well and keep this conversation going. 
Exactly, because this is a dialogue. I haven't really decided how what I think about any of the things that we've discussed for the last 15 minutes. So. We're, we're open to being influenced exactly, always. No. Yeah. And heck, a heck of a lot of you guys are a hell of a lot smarter than us, so Indeed. I'd be curious to hear what everybody has to say. There you go. We got a few questions about this sort of time of year um, and the scheduling. And so the first one's a little bit separate, so I want to do it separately. Um, it's from Gameset Tweets, who asks us, do you think in five years' time we will still have World Team Tennis? It just seems so irrelevant, and the colored courts have got to go. And I will say this person, GameSet Tweets, is British. So they probably have not been to it in person. But they see it from afar, and they do not get it. So what, what do you think? Is World Team Tennis here to stay, Courtney? I don't think you've been to it in person either. So I have I not know. been to it in person. Um, I don't think I've ever really hidden my general apathy towards World Team Tennis. I, I, it it's hard seems, not to have apathy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there. I'm happy that it's there. Yay for it. Um, yay that people can can see some of these players, you know, up close and personal. I think that that's really great. Um, but I know that while World Team Tennis tries to make it out to be like this hardcore competition, like a legit sporting league, mm-hmm. uh, I still see it as a complete series of exhibitions. Yeah, it's in a weird, it's definitely a, that's a big that's a big marketing problem. For the world, for world team tennis, so that's where my whole thing is. I just think that the thing that it wants to be is not the thing that I see it as, and that's my disconnect with it. Basically, it it presents itself, especially with the cast Washington Castles, um, who I think who their owner and their whole sort of ethos has taken the winning part of it and the competition part a lot more seriously than anyone else has, like in the league's history of forty years of being around as a sort of semi exo semi competitive thing. It's in this weird sort of interesting globe trottersy minor league place in tennis there um where it's not pure exit because you are trying to win and they are keeping score very strictly and you don't see things where like you know the ball kids play a point or they bring someone out of the stands to do that or anything um so each point is generally played with pretty decent intensity but the overall yeah importance of it and the league is shrinking i mean the league as much as Billie jean king talks about wanting to grow the league and it being her vision of tennis being a team sport to really go big the league shrunk from nine to seven teams this year and it lost its New York City team, which is not a good sign that you can't survive in that market or keep a foothold in that market. Um, yeah, so in five years, I don't know. It needs to definitely solidify some. Uh, the color courts, I understand, look terrible on TV. They're not as bad in person. And that's sort of the whole thing. I think it's a nice local thing. It's sort of in the way local. the exhibition should always be pretty local. Um, but in terms of having any real relevance to the big picture tennis scene, like it did in the seventies when it was like a four month season and it, people skipped the French to play it and stuff like that, that's not happening again. So if it's going up or down in the short term, I would pick down, but I think it's harmless for what it is. And it's a nice little diversion for people who want a night of tennis in the summer and a place where you don't usually get it most of the year. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of that last part is kind of the upshot for me. I mean, I think that it's nice. It's, it's nice that it exists. And, yeah. you know, you really do forget that, you know, if you live in Austin, yeah. you get to go to an Austin Aces game and, and, and or match, and you're sitting there like courtside, and that's Andy Roddick, and yeah. that's Marion Bartoli, and that's, you know... Zvonareva. Zvonareva, and you get to see these players. And, yeah, are they playing their best tennis? <laughs> Probably not, um, especially when you talk about those three. Um but, uh, you know, if you, you're a Washington Castles fan, it's like, hey, there's Michelle Obama sitting courtside and there's, you know, Venus Williams, you know, mm-hmm. playing tennis and Martina Hingis. And so, it's, it, you know, I think that that's, that's pretty neat. And, and it obviously gives a lot of opportunities to young players, I think, as well. 
you know, uh, to, 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 to get in, to get drafted, yeah. um, and play. I think Madison um, Keats played against Serena in World of Tennis when she was like 14. Exactly. And she won that set. Yeah. And it was like, what? <laughs> and that was Madison Keys. And that um, was Serena also. Exactly. Exactly. But, but yeah, I think that it, it's tough and, and, uh, I mean, bless Billie Jean King and, and her entire team for working so hard to, to make it happen, but it, it's still not a unified product. And, and that makes it a really tough thing to sell. But so basically, I think it's harmless. It's like I said, it's sort of local Austin, San Diego, Boston, Philadelphia, all big markets that don't currently have tennis tournaments that get them through this. And so I don't think there's any reason to root against the league. But I also don't think that it's necessarily without a lot of new ownership coming in. And it, I don't see too much potential for major growth either. So the status quo, I think, is harmless and fun for what it is and yeah that's about it it's existed in this sort of relatively similar state for decades now so whatever low level they have now seems to be pretty sustainable so maybe that's it for the future who knows although i don't know once billy Jean king is i mean she's 70 now so i don't know in decades when she's not as able to be as visible a part of it if it can still hang on because i think a lot of it is still her legacy that sort of is the impetus for keeping the thing going for sure. I mean, it, it's the loyalty to her that gets players to play. Yeah. To get players to continue to play, to get owners. I mean, it's really it's it's if Billie Jean King asks you to play World Team Tennis, you play World Team Tennis. You don't say you don't. No one says no to Billie. Right. So that's why Azarenka's doing this. Some people have. Heard. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense too. Yeah. You know. So. Is what it is. Is what it is indeed. We got a bunch of schedule questions generally about this time of year, which makes sense. This is a weird time of year for scheduling. Uh, this week, we just had a grass court tournament in Newport, and now we're having a clay in Hamburg, and hard courts in Bogota, and hard court for the women in Istanbul. While there's clay being played in Sweden, sort of all over the place. Uh, we got a few questions. Nikila Kokodom uh, asks us, uh, "I'm or not says uh, I'm watching." clay in hamburg in july this seems ridiculous if you could make tours <laughs> make changes to both the tours what would they be um and evan whose name is well it's evan says how would you guys move tournaments around to improve the wta and atp schedule i think after wimbledon it's all a mess and got an email from david de la fuente on similar uh similar sort of topics which basically talks about loan tournaments that especially happen on the wta tour that are not part of the coherent calendar um, which post Wimbledon clays a little bit more. Of, there's a block of them at least, but it talks about things like Paris indoors, which is the only indoor tournament in Europe in the in that time of year. Pattaya, which is like the only Southeast Asian tournament that time of year. Uh, Katowice, which is an indoor hard in Europe, randomly before the clay season. Um, going like that, uh, like and putting like doubling up Stanford Washington same week while having Baku by itself. I mean, how big a problem, Courtney, are these sort of unideal scheduling things and should it all be broken down and rebuilt to make this more streamlined or is it okay that there are just sort of random outliers on the on the calendar is that something that needs fixing necessarily i don't think that it needs fixing i think that um in terms of that specific question about about the outlier tournaments because mm -hmm. i think that right now there is a flow with respect to the slams and the premieres and the masters tournament. And that's what matters mostly. And that's what matters. I mean, everything else, like right now we have effectively what a three week break post Wimbledon where there are no premier fives and there are no premier mandatories and there are no ATP masters 1000. Longer than that. Even I think, yeah, pretty much all the way from 
Wimbledon to Canada, there's none of those levels. Right. So it's one, two, three. Maybe five weeks. Canada's ago. August. Well, Canada's August 1st. Okay. Then yeah. Then yeah. 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 So it's about three, four weeks. But um, and that and I was just checking the calendar right now. That doesn't change next year, even though there's going to be an added week of the grass season. Mm-hmm. There's still going to be a big about four week break. Yes. I mean, the best thing that that does is that it allows the top players, the players who are your marquee players, who you build the tours upon. Um, it gives them time to rest. It lets them go hit the beach and hang out with their boyfriends and girlfriends and get married and wear questionable hot pink things like Rafa Nadal did in, in Ibiza. Um, and that's good. You have to give those top players a break. And yeah. then, in the, but at the same time, you can't within a tennis calendar build a complete break for everybody because then you get the complaints from the lower ranked players who are like, no, no, no. I lost in the first week of Wimbledon. I'm ready like, to go. Yeah. If you don't, schedule tournaments for the next like three weeks i have like seven weeks that i am not making any money and you can't do that to me so this is right now like these three weeks yeah we we joked about it at the start of the podcast right like that it's um these aren't newsworthy events there's nothing that could happen in any of the events in the next like of last week this week and next week that is going to be earth shattering right or change the narrative of tennis but results results wise results wise yeah but it's 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 payday and it's also like we said for world team tennis i mean there's no reason why hamburg and bastad and istanbul or whatever shouldn't get a chance to see these players and if there is an opening in the calendar where they can bring decent level talent there and let the fans in those markets enjoy it power to them you know let there's no reason it all has to make sense from a macro point of view exactly like there you know it's kind of the pretty woman situation you have tournaments and you have cities that are like, we have money. Please give us a <laughs> tournament. And like, I don't think the WTA or ATP are in a position to be like, nah, thanks, though. <laughs> like, you you know, look like, like a whore. Get out of our state. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like, no, you take the money and you, you're like, yeah, okay, Baku, you want a tournament? You can't fill the stands. Nobody cares. And you can't feel, we can't really promise you a field, but you'll still pay us money for an international level sanction. All right. I will say, and people will go. Yeah, the one thing in that question that made sense that immediately is fixable to me is having Stanford and Washington in the same week seems really dumb. With having as many, as few U.S. tournaments as there are now, to have two of them doubled up, I don't get. So that one little thing I think is pretty much immediately fixable. Other than that, yeah, totally agree. Big picture, not every piece needs to make immediate sense and be immediately harmonious. But is is D- DC's international level now? Right, but it's still like, uh, uh, yeah, it is international. But it why double up when there's a Baku week? Yeah, but I don't know. If I'm the WTA, I say if you don't want to double up against Stanford, pay me more money, and I'll move you. That's true. That's, that's true. And that's a different thing. Right, it got it, added onto ATP and stuff. It's an economic issue. It's yeah. not like, yeah, it would be nice, but then you're. If I'm Stanford, I'm pissed off because I'm paying for a premier sanction. Washington pays for an international sanction, which is obviously cheaper. They can obviously pull a good field, so don't like don't give them their own. Like that seems inherently unfair. Because then why why should I pay for my premiere? That's true, but I also think that Stanford would doesn't want to lose players like Sloan and Genie, who are playing Washington over uh, Stanford. Just uh, Stanford got Serena. They, got, they have a much better <laughs> field. Much, much much better. Like, I, I understand. Uh, I get it. I mean, if you pay for the premier sanction, you get a guarantee of top players. Like, you don't have to go out and, like, scramble to get players. So the, the Stanford will always be able, should be able to deliver at least a field. 
as opposed to I think since uh, DC benefits from the fact that obviously it has a it has its relationship with Lagardere, yep. so Lagardere can deliver Lagardere players to DC, and Lagardere players will probably choose it ahead of, of Stanford. And travel wise, um, it's a lot more desirable than going out to West Coast. Yeah. yeah, but this year Stanford Field, I actually really hadn't good. paying attention, and I just looked at it and I was like, whoa, when did that happen? Have now, fun out are they all going to show up? Who knows? But, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, it's pretty good. If you even need to get half of them. That's the best it's been in quite a few years. So yeah, no, yeah, good on you. And I was worried about it with, with it being with San Diego being gone, there being less incentive for people to make the trip out there for one tournament. Um, and it seems to have happened so far. So hooray, Stanford! Another question we got about WTA sort of issues um, and is about streaming from Sherry Ann Walker. Uh, my question is, do you believe that the lack of television streaming coverage of WTA mandatory tournaments and, I guess, other WTA events um, is a troubling issue which WTA should address sooner rather than later, especially given comparison that ATP streams lower-level tournaments, including challengers? Um, what would you recommend, if it, and if it isn't considering, and if it isn't corrected soon, what is the continuing negative impact that this could have on women's tennis? Uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but sort of as a macro thing, we're coming up on tournaments. Like, for example, Washington will have a lot more men streaming than women's because of the way the sanctions work out. And I don't think Stanford will probably be that. Heavy. Oh, I guess Stanford should be streamed actually pretty heavily because it's premier. But um, in general, how detrimental is this lack of WTA streaming and how high a priority is it for women's tennis compared to other issues of prize money and what else, whatever else? Um, I mean, I think that it should definitely, I mean, if it's not a priority for, for Stacey Allister to renegotiate or to figure out the WTA's agreement with Perform, then it should be. Um, and I think that it is, based on the conversations I've had with people within the WTA, that there is an understanding that that the Perform deal, um, you know, isn't delivering the way that they need it to deliver. And, um, and that is, in many ways, a credit to WTA, that... The fact that, you know, this bare bones kind of production um, is not satisfying fans, that the demand is there um, for people want to see more tennis. People want to see, um, you know, their, their players in action on a week to week basis and they expect more. Um, so that needs to be fixed. There's no doubt about that. But I think that people do need to kind of. Obviously, I love the WTA. I'm a champion of the WTA. I think it's great. I, I wish that it was bigger. I want it to be bigger, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not the ATP. It doesn't have the resources that the ATP has. Especially so, especially on this side, where the ATP has the, the TV production, their own company, ATP Media. It's like my Miami store, which I think we talked about right. this briefly when that, when that happened. But that, you should probably was, recap just to lay yeah. this at the table. So basically, the biggest sort of mandatory tournament for WTA where there was a big disparity in terms of streaming this year, at least so far, was Miami, where like all Masters events, um, Masters 1000 events on ATP, it's produced by ATP Media Company or whatever, ATP Media Holdings, whatever it's called, ATP Media, um, which is uh, the ATP-owned production company that does all the thousands and a lot of the 500s too. And essentially the WTA subcontracts ATP media to produce its own matches and has to pay like per match at a pretty expensive rate. And so they, whereas ATP can get as many as they want, WTA 
really have to shell a lot more cash because they don't have the infrastructure already built there um, for this setup. And it's something they should change because I think I think that Miami has said they don't want or other tournaments have also said they, they don't want two production companies sharing space at a tournament. They want it to be one unified thing. And right now the ATP uh, got there first and is not really <laughs> eager to share when they've invested so much money in building this up um, to just let the WTA come in midway through without the same sort of investment. So even though these are equal prize money tournaments, one person uh, told me they don't ATP doesn't feel like it's been equal investment at all from the two tours. And I understand that. They don't have a reason. ATP has no reason to try to pull the women up by their bootstraps economically when it's not getting them any more money. No, it's, and, and it doesn't... Uh... You can understand the yeah the mentality of like you don't the WTA doesn't get to cut in line yeah exactly you know when it when it comes to to digital rights and to, to production and to TV production and things like that so it's it's on both sides like one is the production side and then the other is the the contract side right of like actually getting you know Tennis Channel or or ESPN or whoever it is to air your matches on television to have a platform you know which is what Perform was supposed to be um, to to air things. Um, online with like tennis tv and, and things like that but yeah. and just have more of that like today i knew that like for this wozniacki benchich match when i saw it happening i went to tennis tv to see if it was there and it locked. was and it wasn't it wasn't even an option i don't think on the site or at least i was on my app or something oh and i think you're right actually yeah it wasn't it's even true. an option so i went i went to some illegal streaming site and found there was i think like an italian stream or something of this match for whatever reason and i pulled that up and there's no reason why WTA shouldn't make that stream available. If there are multiple cameras and producers in place in a city, pipe that through to everybody. Well, People will want to watch Caroline. You know, this is where this is where I personally get frustrated with some of the, the television complaints. Okay. Is that there is a reason why. You cannot just give this shit away for free. Well, no, I'm saying put it on tennis TV, which is not free. Mm, depends on, like, with, again, I haven't seen the, the contract WTA has with, with, with Perform and Tennis TV. So... I mean, basically, I assume, though, that if you wanted to produce a match, like if it wasn't available on Tennis TV and the only stream that you were able to find was an Italian one, probably means there was no English production possible of the match, which yeah. means that I would assume under a contract that if they wanted to do it, it would cost the money That's true. to bring in a commentator to tap into the feed. Maybe it's not that maybe there isn't a world feed. Maybe that's a particular feed. I don't know. But there are a lot of different like things going on. But I mean, WTA is not in a position to say like, well, we're just going to give away free streams to everybody and sink in all this money. Yeah. And so this goes back to one of the big points that I, that I wanted to make about all of this. Nothing's going to change until the WTA gets a name sponsor. Mm. WTA needs a massive influx of money so that they can make the investments. They need cash. They need capital to make the investments into this side of things. Because with respect to the TV and the online and all that, it's not cheap and it's not, you know, it's not overnight. You have to actually sink the costs. You have to put the money into it to get the reward. There's no shortcutting it. And yeah. until, I mean, it's how long has it been since Sony Ericsson got chopped off? Stop being a title sponsor quite a few years. They were yeah. in a low, they were in a sort of uh, tertiary sponsor role for a couple years after that too. But since they've had title sponsor quite a while. That's something that this sport needs, that the women's tour needs. And they, yeah, they haven't been able to get it. Stacy and whoever else is trying to get that hasn't been able to nail that down yet. And that's definitely a glaring uh, uh, a shortcoming. 
yeah, it's a it's a big knock on her right now, and and I think you know the general more and more as as kind of the years go by, like you know you you hear more uh, discontent um, among among people within tennis about you know WTA has this product. It's, it seems like a pretty good product, and it's not being sold the right way, and and that becomes a bit frustrating. But but yeah, I mean. It, the TV side and the streaming side, it, it's tough, you know, because you need to have the right contracts and you also need to just make the investment. And, and I will say also on the, on the complaints about streaming side, people who are complaining about there being no streaming for a match when they're just trying to find an illegal one and don't have a subscription to anything really have no right to complain. You got to pay, sure. dudes. You got to pay. pay. You have to pay for the right to complain. Now, if it like what I mean, because I do I do exactly what Ben does, which is. If there's a match I want to watch, I go automatically to, to Tennis TV or watch ESPN. Yeah. And if neither of those two are, are showing the match, then I go to the illegals. But A lot of people you know, go illegal first. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's fine if you go to illegals, but you're still, like, you know, paying your money to a subscription service. Like, you just choose. Sometimes it's just easier because yeah. illegal streams are just two clicks away, whereas Tennis TV is, like, four. Um, so out of sheer laziness. But... Yeah, if you're not paying a service to, to to at least somebody, because the money has to come from somewhere, and if we're all if everybody's stealing, then yeah, there isn't any money in streaming tennis, actually. You yeah. know, so fess up, just open your wallets. Tennis TV is very good; it's high def when it works. You can play back a lot of things. You can rewind, which is pretty cool. Yep, has some pluses. Open your wallets and your hearts. I agree. There you go. Support you support complain. local, and then you can complain. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. Pay for the right to complain. Which is a really then you'll be so much happier. Such a it's such a write offable expense. It's pretty much what I do. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so that's gonna do it for episode eighty one A of No Challenges Remaining. Cordy and I answered so many questions that we're breaking it up into two parts. We'll have part eighty one B for you next week and we will do it all again. Bye guys. Do it again. And then it arrives the moment before the anticipation. You know it's like mm-hmm.